Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Seven Investing Podcast. I'm Seven Investing founder and CEO Simon Erickson. I'm very excited to welcome my guest today. Evan Knowles is the co founder of Simba. He's also an investing and technology enthusiast. He really has his pulse in some of the most innovative things going on all across America. Hey, Evan, thanks for joining Seven Investing here this morning. Hey, Simon. Super excited. I'm glad we could get to do this. Absolutely. Evan, you and I have chatted for a, for a while here, and uh, we've been talking about your background because I know you live in Kentucky, and you have kind of an interesting way that you got into investing and technology and startups in the first place, inc including a crazy story as you described it to me. Can you start with your background and kind of tell me how you got into this in the first place? Yeah, absolutely. So I uh, grew up here in Kentucky, very small town, um, about 30,000 people, uh, kind of grew up just, you know, normal kid, enjoyed sports and had no idea technology would be something I'd, I'd love in the future. Uh, but went to UK and started a technology startup my freshman year with some, some friends and really kind of fell in love with software and entrepreneurship at that point, um, learned a whole lot. Um, and at that point, I, I began to realize that um, you know, I was going to college for finance and economics. Um, I loved finance. I loved, um, you know, the macro uh, economics concept and, and really studying how the world works from a, from a macro perspective and how people um, and their minds can, can affect a, an economy. Uh, but then once I kind of really fell in love with uh, technology and startups, I kind of dove in and just really kind of stopped paying attention in school, honestly, and, and just kind of wanted to dive full head first into the space. And so I ended up dropping out of college um, and joined a startup called Fuji. Um, and Fuji is that crazy story you just referenced. Um, and that was kind of where my, my career, I guess you could say, began to take off. And I, I just grew exponentially as, as um, I just kind of got thrown into it. I was kind of thrown to the wolves and had to learn on my own. And um, so Fuji was a crazy story because we had started as just three people in Lexington, Kentucky in a small studio apartment. We had some remote um, engineers and the founders had uh, come to University of Kentucky and said, we'd love to have a student to help us you know, grow this company uh, here in Lexington. And I was that student that UK um, kind of pushed towards them as somebody that might be interested in helping them build the company. And so we went from three people and basically zero revenue to 65 people in about two and a half, three years um, and scaled revenue to close to 10 million. Um, and my role was to help build the sales team alongside the, the founder and CEO. Um, and we had an amazing product. Uh, the product was pretty revolutionary. I still think to this day, it's going to be a big future um, part of the, the marketing landscape. So what we had built was, um, it was essentially connecting social media to on-demand delivery services. So on-demand delivery services are hot right now, obviously with COVID. But what we had done was we connected those two through APIs and we used them as a marketing channel. So basically what, what that looked like was Walt Disney or Disney for, let's say, uh, Star Wars. We worked with all the Star Wars movies. Instead of buying Facebook ads or Twitter ads, they'd put some budget towards Fuji and delivering physical product. And so we would put out on Twitter a tweet that would say, um, hey, Star Wars fans, tweet this hashtag and this emoji uh, for your, a chance to win a free lightsaber delivered to you in 60 minutes. And so what happened when you'd have all these people across the country tweeting about Star Wars to get this physical delivery that would be brought to their front door within 60 minutes. And so we were really connecting the physical world to the digital world in this really unique way, leveraging on-demand delivery services. And so what you had were thousands and thousands of people tweeting about Star Wars 
And then you had all these people sharing pictures of the delivery they received. And so Disney would get a ton of organic media off the back of this user-generated content versus having to pay for all that attention in the form of impressions. Um, so it's a really amazing product and we um, really scaled the company. Um, and it was a crazy story because we had scaled to 65 people, raised a good amount of venture funding, um, completely ran out of, out of cash. We burned through that pretty fast um, and went down to back, back down to about 30 employees. Um, and so the company is, is still around. Um, it's still growing. It's still very, doing very well. Um, but it was just a really amazing story um, that happened right here in Lexington, Kentucky. That's not really that known for innovative companies like that um, yet. I'll, I'll put yet because I'm sure we'll get to it. But um, I think this region is really going to be growing. But it's just an amazing story to happen right here in Kentucky. Yeah, that's fantastic. That really is pretty impressive. You jumped into the deep end and, and got into that whole startup and technology system. Uh, you mentioned APIs, and I want to talk about that a little bit more because, you know, our audience here at 7investing, we're individual investors. We're looking for publicly traded companies, um, which, you know, kind of removes us from a lot of those startups or earlier stage companies. But there's a lot of technology that's very interesting to them. And that's what I want to dig a little bit deeper into. Yeah. Evan, you've said that, you know, you're an investor as well. You invest in publicly traded equities and you tend to structure your own portfolio into three buckets. Uh, one is enterprise software. One is consumer focused platforms and the other is developer tools. And I'd like to touch on each one of those individually because they're very interesting, not only to get an understanding of why you've picked these buckets to invest in, but also to give an example from each one of those. And so let's start with enterprise software. This is something that has been a very popular segment of the market in recent years. But what is it kind of generally about enterprise software that you find so intriguing? Yeah, I mean, I really like enterprise software because, you know, these software solutions like, uh, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about Yex, DocuSign, WeWork, or not WeWork, I always say that with work, uh, Slack, uh, you know, Microsoft, these companies are really providing very vital software for enterprises to help them grow. Um, and I think that I view them just like I view developer tools as utilities. Um, and they're really helping these companies um, with very critical, um, you know, solutions like, you know, electronic signatures, um, communication, you know, all these things are vital to these businesses. Um, and I just view them as things that are not going anywhere. Um, they're very steady in my mind. Uh, at this point, you know, maybe a few years ago, they were viewed as, as risky. Um, but at this point, um, I think they're the new, um, you know, staple companies to invest in that provide growth into the future. And I don't see them going anywhere. You, you mentioned Yext. That's a company that I'm also a big fan of. You and I have talked about this many times. In fact, you were the very first person to introduce me to Yext. So that's something I credit you with, um, if quite thankfully, because I think it's a great company. But tell me a little bit about why you're so interested in Yext. What are they doing out there that's, that's so intriguing? Yeah, I mean, when I first came across Yext, I was tipped off by a friend. And I just kind of began to look into them. And at first, I really wasn't all that impressed. Um, but once I really started to dig deeper, um, because I think it's a company that really at the surface is hard to understand. Um, they're doing something totally new. They're creating a brand new software category. Um, and so once I began to dig deeper, I began to realize that they're solving a pretty big problem in the world. So traditionally a business would have pretty good control over their brand, you know, prior to the social media age and the digital assistant age. And, you know, a lot of these um, artificial intelligence based tools, they would have pretty good control over their brand through their website. You know, normally as a customer, 
you'd go to their website, you'd learn about their services, you might purchase something from them. Um, you might look at their menus there. Uh, but what has happened over the last, you know, I'd say five, um, five to 10 years is now you're starting to see all of that brand control be shifted out of their hands and into social media, into services like Yelp, into services like Google and Amazon and Apple. And so now their brand has become extremely distributed um, and that's created a, a pretty big problem. Uh, and it's created a problem of they don't no longer have control over this brand. And so what Yext has come along and done um, is built um, search ex and ex search experience cloud or digital knowledge management cloud. Um, and so many of us are familiar with, you know, Google has um, a knowledge graph and so does, you know, Microsoft and Amazon. Um, and so what Yext has come along and done is built a knowledge graph for these businesses um, to input their customer facing data, their publicly facing data. And then Yext syncs that across all the places a consumer can access that, that data. Again, it's Snapchat, it's Facebook, it's Google, it's Yelp. It's all of these services where now consumers are looking for information. Um, and that's super important because again, it gives control back to the brand and it puts the truth out there like they like to say, um, so that consumers can access the correct information. And so the, I like to paint the picture of, you know, during COVID, a lot of restaurants have had to change their hours. They've changed from physical uh, brick and mortar to deliveries or takeout. Well, with Yext, um, now businesses can make sure that consumers who might be looking for food get the correct answer, uh, whether they're getting takeout or going and eating in person. Um, and I had this personal frustration where I would show up to a restaurant, its hours or its status would not be updated and it'd be closed and I wouldn't be able to get that food. And that's a bad experience for me as a consumer. Um, and so Yext is kind of giving that control um, back to businesses uh, and I think it's just a really big model and has a lot of implications for, you know, artificial intelligence going forward, internet of things, autonomous cars. Um, so many things are going to re rely on this structured, very accurate data. Um, and it, Yext allows, um, you know, these services to consume that data directly from the source. That knowledge graph is huge. Like you say, controlling the experience, controlling the brand out there in this distributed world that we live in now. I'm glad you touched on that. But as you also mentioned, COVID has kind of changed the game in these these last couple of months where retail companies are having a tough time, you know, restaurants and, and everyone else that has a physical presence. Um, this is very challenging for them. And we've also seen Yext pivot the business to adapt to that, to Yext Answers recently. And for those who are unfamiliar, Yext Answers is kind of the control that a company has over its own search experience on its own website. And something, Evan, that you mentioned recently was uh, about conversational intelligence, where, where Yex is now uh, not only going out and controlling the, the search experience, but also giving companies control over their own website. How important is Yext Answers uh, for this company? Yeah, um, I don't know if I'd view it as a pivot, but it's, this is a very innovative company that's building on the base of that knowledge graph. Um, you know, as they get more businesses to build on this knowledge graph, they'll continue to launch products like Answers on top of this. So um, I think it's always been in the plans to have Answers. Um, and I think it's really important now with COVID because you know, I think one of the reasons that you know, they're not growing as fast as we had hoped right now in this particular time is because they were always leading their sales with this listings product that I mentioned where it syncs all of their listings. But now that COVID has happened, it's a good thing that they launched Answers is because that doesn't rely so heavily on brick and mortar brands. Anybody can launch an answers um, 
product with their, with their brand. Um, and so, you know, to answer your question about conversational intelligence, there's really not a big difference between search and conversational um, intelligence. You're asking a question and you're expecting an answer. Um, and so what Yext is, is doing is they're building a conversational knowledge graph, semantic search. So they're, they're connecting this digital structured data um, semantically so that when somebody types in a question, they're able to analyze the way that they're asking that question using natural language processing and spit out a direct answer. Whereas before with search, it was spitting out documents, it was spitting out, you know, all of these keywords, it was taking these keywords and spitting out, you know, documents. Um, and in the new world where things are heading, it's conversational. Um, and so they're going to be using natural language processing with answers um, and other products they're going to launch in the future and give direct answers. And so to me, this answers product is the beginnings of them really kind of leading the charge in conversational intelligence. Um, and you're going to see it on websites. You're going to see it with Alexa. I mean, we Alexa is just in its early innings. Right now we're asking questions about the weather or the time of day or what, what's my alarm clock in the morning. But in the future, we're going to be asking questions like how many calories in my Big Mac or, um, you know, how many uh, AutoZone locations are there here in Lexington, Kentucky, and which one's closest to me? You know, we're going to be asking very particular questions about brands like that. And Yex is giving them the power conversationally to answer those questions and not just return a link. Does that make Yex Answers the, the ultimate uh, digital, completely efficient customer service rep that every company would like to have? I think it's moving in that direction, honestly. So part of the thing that's interesting to me about them is how they're releasing their case studies related to answers. If you read some of these case studies, one of the key metrics they're putting out there is uh, costs saved related to customer service. So anytime you call a brand and have a customer service question and you're on the phone with somebody, I think it's something like $8 that it costs for that time. Um, and so what Answers is doing is now somebody can go to a website, ask a question, get a direct answer, and that takes that $8 out of the equation. You're not having to talk to a rep. But what's more important here is it's training itself. The brand is training itself. So anytime you ask a question to this Answers product and you don't get a direct answer back, on the back end, the brand can see what question you asked and make sure that the next time somebody asks that question, they get a direct answer. And so they edit the knowledge graph as time goes on based on how people engage with it. I think that's huge. Um, and that's some, that's a type of transparency that brands really haven't had in the past that I think is, you know, exponentially valuable as time goes on. Cause eventually it'll get to the point that somebody comes to a website, asks a question and they get an answer every time. So there's a, there's a definitely a long tail here as far as like what questions people ask. And it just gets, gets to the point where there'll be like a 99 percentile, um, of, a, of an answer. And then the, the, always the, the 0.1% will be something that you're always adding in after the fact. And so that transparency will eventually get to the point where somebody gets an answer almost every time. Well, as someone who has spent a fair amount of time waiting on hold when I call the cable company, and then I don't even get the correct answers at the end of those hour-long conversations, uh, I'm certainly looking forward to the better experience. And I think that's a win-win for, for companies and also for their customers. Uh, Evan, let's move on. The second platform, I'm sorry, the second segment of, of investments that you tend to like is kind of consumer facing platforms. So we just talked about the enterprise, you know, we talked about DocuSign, we talked about Yext, but then there's also another group that's kind of more facing directly to consumers. Uh, broadly speaking, what is it about this category that you're really interested in? I think it's extremely high growth. And if you're using, you know, really great um, artificial intelligence, you're collecting really valuable data 
over time that creates a really good moat that I'm attracted to. Um, so there's all kinds of moats, but one of the ones I'm most attracted to right now is, is a data moat. Um, and I, I look for companies that are collecting really valuable data or aggregating um, really valuable data um, and using that uh, to their advantage to provide next generation services to consumers. Um, and some of those that come to mind were, um, you know, Livongo, um, Roku, Stitch Fix, um, and, and Square. Let's talk a little bit more about Roku. That's, that's yeah. a familiar one. You've described this as kind of the operating system of the next generation of entertainment, of, of television. What is it that attracts you to your Roku so much? Yeah, I mean, I really like their business model. I like how they are subsidizing um, TV manufacturers to provide a lower cost TV for consumers. Um, and that's basically their cost of acquisition. Um, and then um, they're monetizing that, that user base with their user interface, um, as well as taking a percentage of ads off of some of these more traditional um, cable companies or um, not cable companies, but the, the providers of media, the media companies. So like HBO or Comcast or, or some of those are taking a percentage of, of ad-based uh, revenue, um, inline ads with, with the content. Um, so I think that's a really interesting model. Uh, and I like to look at it again, as, as you said, at the operating system of TV, I think that's really important uh, because of how big of a market share they have um, in the smart TV market. You know, I think they have close to 40% of all new smart TVs being sold or, um, you know, have Roku built in. Uh, and I think that's really important. Um, and I think it's one of the last big platforms in the home to be owned by somebody. Um, and, and Roku right now owns that. Um, you know, there's also other players like um, Amazon and Apple, Google playing in the space. But the problem with them is they're not a third party. They're going to be biased because they also produce media. Um, but Roku does not create its own original content. They don't have its, their own media. And that's really important because a lot of these um, media providers, they want to see that. So there's no bias. There's no um, ads that are pushing people towards their own services. They're not favorably placing their own content. Um, and Roku is in a really good position. You know, it's almost, again, like Yext. You know, Yext is in a great position because they're a third party that sits, um, that's aggregating all of the other services. Uh, they're not biased as far as what information they're putting out in the world. They're helping spread the right information. Roku is doing the same thing with media. You know, they're aggregating a lot of the media in one place and don't necessarily have a bias towards one or the other. And then what that does is it creates a great experience for the consumer. At the end of the day, the consumer gets what they want um, and they're not being pushed towards anything in particular. I think that's an interesting point. You know, as, as you mentioned, their, their independence could be a huge advantage. And the operating system, like you mentioned, you've got TVs and we're all going out and buying TVs, but those TV manufacturers know that it's a benefit for them to have something like Roku built in directly. So there's no friction. You don't have to go out and buy the little stick anymore to, to put it into the TV. It's already embedded. And then we've seen Netflix, of course, for, for several years, kind of controlling their own experience and their own subscription. Um, Roku, like you said, is more independent. They don't really have to own the content. They've got others that they have subscription channels. Is this a winner is going to take most um, future of entertainment where we've got a couple of channels or a couple of, of um, options that are built into our TV and then the rest are just kind of pushed out because we're not watching those anymore? Yeah, I mean, Roku or uh, Disney and Netflix certainly have a great advantage um, because those that own the content, the best content are obviously going to have the most consumers. Um, and Disney's always had, you know, that, that advantage. Um, 
And, you know, Netflix has obviously led it, you know, steamed ahead of the majority of the pack because they were early to this recurring revenue business model. And they took all of those, um, all that cash and just fed it back into content. I do think that, you know, it'll be, um, you know, two or three people at the top that have the vast, vast majority of market share. I think those two will be Disney uh, with their, um, you know, Disney Plus, their ESPN, um, and, and some of those other um, subsidiaries that they have, um, along with uh, Netflix. I do think that it'll be winner take most. Um, I don't think it'll be winner take all, because there's always going to be that long tail. Um, but in the age of subscriptions, I think those that own the most content and have the, adva- that have the early advantage, which is Netflix and Disney, um, I think they're just going to reinvest and take more of the market share as time goes on. Those that were late to the game, like, like Comcast, um, Viacom, I think that, you know, ultimately what either happens is they just accept that they have um, a smaller market share or some of those um, brands that they own, um, like MTV or BET, um, some of those that Viacom own end up just getting acquired. So I could see Viacom getting acquired in the future. Um, so I think there's going to be, you know, winner take most, and then there's going to be some con- consolidation. Yeah, that's great, Evan. The, uh, the third category that you mentioned was developer tools. And we're talking about software developers here because this is really interesting. The past couple of years, we've really seen a movement to be more open source, uh, where companies are, are really kind of sharing the, the source code of the things that they're developing rather than trying to have it proprietary or just have their own coders do all of the work in-house. And then we're also seeing through cloud computing, uh, you just a a huge shift from on-premise software to, to cloud-based software. And so there are a ton of developers out there that are tweaking and, and changing things. And there are a couple of companies that are really making it as easy as possible for developers to do that work. But what is it about this segment that really, I guess, draws you to it in terms of investing? Yeah, I mean, what, what originally attracted me was just the, the concept of you know, paying as you go and paying for a tool that you might not want to build yourself. So if you're building a house, you don't want, you don't want to build a, a hammer, you know, you want to go buy a hammer. Um, and so what really attracted me to developer tools was the fact that, you know, these businesses are building these tools and saving developers a ton of time where they would have to build this stuff in house. So that was kind of what originally attracted me when I really started to, to study Twilio. I came across Twilio before it went public. And then when they went public, um, I started to you know, dig in even more as the transparency um, of their financials came out. And at that point, I really fell in love with um, really the economics of these developer tools and, and their business model. You know, the, the usage-based model, I think, is I don't, I'm not sure how you could create a better uh, business model than usage-based. Um, it does so many great things for all parties. Um, it perfectly aligns all the stakeholders, um, especially you know, those that are purchasing these tools. Um, again, I mentioned that uh, these developers are no longer having to build these large infrastructure-based um, tools like communications or um, cloud computing. You know, Fastly is one of the ones I love. Edge. You know, these are things that are very expensive lifts, but now these developers can just plug in these APIs that these companies like Twilio and Agora and, and Fastly are building. And so that's really important. Um, the low barrier to entry. Um, so you can basically just create a really low-cost test with something like a Twilio, there's no really big upfront cost. Um, and that, what that allows is really brand new business models to be created. Um, if you think about you know, Uber, when Uber launched, they were leveraging Twilio. Um, and, and the fact that you could summon a car and communicate with that driver and communicate with Uber through text, 
that was magical. You know, that really hadn't happened to consumers up to that point um, really well. And Twilio allows that to happen and take place. And so you're going to start to see, you're already seeing it, brand new business models built off the back of these developer tools in the healthcare space, in the restaurant space, and so many of these other industries that are traditionally very brick and mortar and legacy. They're leveraging these these developer tools to kind of reaccelerate their their innovation because again, it's it's very low cost. They pay as they go, um, and they're saving the developers time so they can focus on you know maybe what they're better at. A healthcare company should not be in the business of building communication tools. They should be in the business of creating great healthcare experiences. And so what Twilio allows is for them to do that. It's a perfect description when you call it a utility. You know, you, you have a meter that monitors your electricity in your house. You have a meter that monitors your, your water. Those are usage-based utilities, just like the tools that are out there are, are usage-based, letting companies just run with it rather than a seat-based license or something like that. It's almost like we're moving in this new wave of tools from human intervention to just to machine-to-machine communication and bill as you go. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean you said it. I think they're high-growth utilities, you know, before, um, you know, I view electricity as computation now. So AWS and Fastly are, are building the, the new electricity utilities. Stripe and, Spot and Shopify are building the new POS systems. Um, Twilio is building the new telecommunication systems. Um, and these are all utilities that, you know, brick and mortar businesses relied on in the past. You know, telecom, electricity, POS systems. And now we're taking those and just putting those into the cloud and, now businesses can pay as they go. And that frees up a lot of um, opportunity for these businesses in the cloud, um, cloud era. Yeah, that's great. So again, to recap, Evan, you know, we talked a little bit about enterprise software. We talked about consumer facing platforms. We talked about developer tools. Obviously all of these have been great performers in terms of the, the buckets of the stock market that they represent. They've been up several, you know, hundred percent, a couple, I believe the cloud computing is up 500% as a basket over the last five years. So it's been incredible, but they're also risky investments, right? This is growth style investing. You don't have a whole lot of, um, you know, decades of experience or decades of, of, of previous work that's, that's had these companies around. They're still relatively new. And I wanna shift gears on that note to talk about real estate of all things, uh, because I know that you are also a real estate investor and you kind of think about this as a way to diversify or hedge against a lot of that high risk growth style investing. Um, explain that to me a little bit. What, what is it intriguing about real estate since we've been talking about software and cloud and technology so much? Yeah, I mean, I first got into real estate, um, you know, when I was at Fuji for my age, I, I had made um, pretty good money for my age and I want to do something intelligent with that. And that's really kind of when I really dug into, you know, equities in the market, but I also dug into um, real estate. Um, I view real estate as, you know, like you said, diversification. Um, I thrive. I love high, I love risk. Like I go towards risk. I love it. Um, for my age, you know, I'm, I'm 24. So I, I want to seek out that, that risk right now. Um, and so I think that's important. And what I view real estate as is kind of the opposite of that. If, you know, if you play your cards, right. Um, it's really not that, that risky and it, it can generate cash flows that you, you build equity. Um, and so that's what I'm doing right now. Um, and so I, I started a company, uh, two years ago um, with some friends and we began buying multifamily properties. Um, and then I also house hack, uh, which means I have a house that I rent out the other bedrooms in and I, I don't have any expenses. Um, so I can bootstrap businesses and focus on what I love and, and provide value to this region of the United States without having to worry too much about, you know, a mortgage payment or electricity or things like that. Um, and so I, I just figured out how to leverage 
real estate. And I think the earlier you figure out, figure out how to leverage real estate in your life, um, the more you're able to hedge risk as time goes on. Um, and so that, that's kind of why I got involved in, in real estate. I like that story, especially since investing is such a long-term game. You don't want to, you want to be able to sleep at night. You don't want to have to be worried about the market selling off, whether or not you can actually pay your mortgage that month. This is a great way to think long-term and, and hedge a lot of the risks that you take in other areas. Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, Evan, again, you know, this has really been an enjoyable conversation. I, I know that you have really been on the front lines of seeing a lot of the most innovative things going on out there. You have about 17 different titles. Most of them are CEO or co-founder. Uh, but, you know, our audience, again, individual investors, what's maybe one thing, you know, it, with everything that you're looking at out there, with all the innovation that you see, with all of the investments that you're making, what, what's one thing you think we should be keeping an eye on or at least should have on our radar and be thinking about as individual investors? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I would say um, just continuing to look for, um, I mean, again, one of the favorite things that I like to look for are data moats. Um, I think that now in the days of artificial intelligence, um, the more valuable data a company aggregates and collects, um, the longer they're going to be able to provide valuable services, the more of a moat they're going to have. Because ultimately, data um, allows you to build unique services on top of it. This is why I love Yex. That's why I loved um, Lavanga. Once I saw Lavanga, I really became attracted to that model. Um, ultimately, they're data companies. You know, they're, they're data companies that are building, you know, intelligent um, products on top of those, um, on top of that data. Um, and whenever I look at a company, I, one of the things I always try to look for is what kind of unique data are they collecting and how are they going to leverage that into the future? And what kind of services and value are they going to provide consumers or businesses with that data? Um, and so I would just say whenever you look at a business, one of the things you could look at and, and study is, is a moat related to the data. Um, you know, I think a lot of the more traditional moats will always still be there, whether it's brand, whether it's some kind of um, trade secrets, um, or market share, whatever it is, um, that's a moat. I think one of the newer moats going forward is, is just going to be uh, unique data. Um, so that's, that's kind of one of the things I always look for. Well, once again, Evan Knowles, he is the, uh, the co-founder of Simba. He's also a technology enthusiast, also has his own podcast called Middle Tech Podcast. A really, a, a guy that I think, Evan, I think, I think it, you're just brilliant and you're really in the front lines of some of the most innovative things taking place out there. I really appreciate you spending the time with Seven Investing here this morning. Yes, yeah, Simon, I really appreciate you having me on and I, I really respect what you guys are doing with Seven Investing. I'm a very happy subscriber. Thank you very much for that. And thank you for tuning into this episode of our Seven Investing Podcast. We are here to empower you to invest in your future. We are Seven Investing. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. And before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult with a financial or tax professional.